Blog Talk Radio. Black Politics Today. An eye for what's at stake in global politics and your source for the social, economic, and political impact of public policy on the African American community. Your host, Kelly Michael Williams, is a political strategy veteran with an undefeated campaign record and the political experience that spans nearly three decades, from Mayor Willie Brown in California to President Barack Obama in our nation's capital. So get ready for a fresh and honest approach on the politics that affect you and your family the most. Now, your host, Kelly Michael Williams. feeling and and experiencing 
the heartache, the pain, the anger, the frustration, the inequalities of everything that we see going on uh, now as a result of what's happened here um, in the last week, but more importantly, just the policies that have been put in place that continue to move us uh, further and further back as well as much as we think we're moving further and further ahead. There's always that one step forward, those two steps back that we seem to be taking each and every day, each and every week, month, year, and election cycle. From the East Coast to the West Coast and everywhere in between, Americans, Black, White, Asian, Latinos are gathering in the streets of major cities across America to express their frustration, their anger, ultimate disgust for legalized murder at the hands of law enforcement. This is not the first time we've seen it. I doubt it'll be the last time we see it. We can only pray and hope that it is. But the reality of it is, is that we continue to see police brutality that seems so frequently and religiously exposing itself against black and brown folks. And the, the violence of it is nothing like we ever seen with white folks. White folks can carry AR-57, or AK-57, uh, AR-15s, um, uh, those little Uzi guns and everything else and walk into the state capitol and taunt elected officials to the point where they will close their session down early because they feel threatened and the state police and the capitol police and everybody that's around there won't do a darn thing about it. They will look at them and let them walk by. But as soon as 10 black folks decide that they want to march because they pissed off about another white cop killing another black man, they get tear gassed, they get pepper sprayed, they get rioted, and then they bring out the military equipment to tell black folks, get your black asses back home because you don't belong on the street. How many times do we have to deal with that and be victims of that until we decide we're going to do something about it, not loot, fight, or do anything else, but run for office, put our money collectively together, build our own community, put ourselves separate ourselves back out because the separate but equal didn't work, okay? We can see that. That didn't work. We need to do something else. We need to change the idea. The same process that a white dude gets for uh, when he gets stopped, he gets the presumption of innocence and he gets due process. Our due process gets played out on the streets of L.A., New York, San Francisco, Chicago, Milwaukee, um, um, Minneapolis, Milwaukee, Dallas, Houston, and everywhere else on the street. And if we breathe, if we can't breathe, if we move, or we do something that puts them in fear, all of a sudden we end up dead. They go to court or trial and they say, well, I was in fear for my life, and they get acquitted. We have got to stop the routine of unarmed African-Americans being gunned down, beat down, and executed on national TV by law enforcement with impunity. They get to do it, and they do it religiously over and over again. I mean, just looking at the dude's face, Derek, I don't even know his last name, but looking at his eyes when he sat there and heard the people telling him, get up off of him, he can't breathe. A first responder telling him, get up off of him, he can't breathe. He looked at him like, who cares? So what if he can't breathe? Get out of my face. He showed no emotion, no care, no concern. And right now, you have issues going on in every part of the country, 
everywhere where the the, the news media is targeting African Americans as the destroyers of their own community, the purveyors of looters, arsonists, and saboteurs. You have all the news uh, uh, outlets uh, saying that you know it's it's us or portraying that it's us doing all the looting and 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 all the arsony, uh, um, setting all the fires and, and committing arson, and yet looting has been what the Constitution and state and federal laws have been doing to black Americans for over 200 years. I looked up the term looting. Looting is goods usually of considerable value, something held to reasonable goods of value, something appropriately, illegally, often by force, something appropriated illegally, often by force or violence, to plunder, to seize, or carry away by force, illicit gains by public officials. And I thought about that. Law enforcement, state and federal governments have been looting black lives since we were brought here in 1619. Our value, which I just talked about last week, our black value, our ability to to work, work hard, do all the things we need to do. They didn't bring anybody else over here as slaves. They brought us over here as slaves. We built this country. They stole, they looted our value as people and made us property. They looted our value in our communities because they only consider it value when they gentrify our community and when they come in and take over our community. They looted our value when they don't put money in our education system in our community because they don't want us to be educated. They looted our value and they continue to do it when they put their knees on our neck and allow us to sit there and die after 10 minutes of telling your ass, I can't breathe. And they continue to do it. Our value, our goods, our hard labor has been plundered and seized for illicit gains by public officials, by white citizens, by America. And it's got to stop. Our black value is valuable. And not only do we have to recognize it, we have to make them recognize it. My guest tonight law professor from Los Angeles, California, Sharon Kyle. She's a former president of the Guild Law School and is a publisher and co-founder of LA Progressive. For years before, uh, years before her uh, immersion herself into law and social justice, Kyle was a member of, the several, of several space flight teams at NASA, NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, where she managed resources for projects like uh, Mulligan, uh, Genesis, and Mars Pathfinder, excuse me, uh, also joining us tonight, which I'm very happy and excited to do for his first time being here on the show, is um, Ward 4 Minneapolis City Council member Philippe uh, Cunningham. Uh, Cunningham is the first openly transgendered male elected to public office in the United States. He's a graduate of DePaul University. He's a former special ed teacher in the south side of Chicago. Uh, Council member Cunningham has successfully acquired $1.25 million for single-family homes and another million for violence prevention, and $15 million in his city and state um, and state bonds for Upper Harbor Terminal Redevelopment. Also joining us tonight is my good friend who will be joining us uh, momentarily is New York retired detective Mark Claxton. You've seen Mark Claxton on MSNBC, CNN, and I believe on Fox here and there. He is currently a director of public relations and political affairs for the Black Law Enforcement Alliance. He's a, he's a retired New York detective whose assignments 
included un, uh, uniform and plainclothes patrol uh, enforcement in the 20, 28th precinct in the central Harlem. And he's a life, uh, life member of the NAACP. And then also finally joining us is my good friend, my, my one and only I call every time I want a good, good, good perspective of what's going on in America is Dr. Wilmer Leon III. He's a former adjunct professor at Howard University. He's the host uh, on XM Radio, uh, Inside the Issues with Wilmer Leon, which airs every Saturday at 11 a.m. on Channel 126. I want to welcome you guys to the show. Welcome to the show, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad to hear you. Councilmember, let me start with you because uh, I'm excited to have you. I'm, I'm glad you took some time out. I know you've been uh, up, as you said, you've been up all night dealing with issues in, in your community and and how, and how uh, things are going on. Let me ask you, first of all, how are things going? Uh, what's happening in Minneapolis today? And uh, uh, where do we stand? Yes, well, thank you so much for having me. I, I feel honored to be here amongst such an esteemed panel. Um, so right now what we're seeing uh, across Minneapolis is really just a lot of pain and trauma. You spoke to this so eloquently. When we look at policing, the roots of it are just so steeped in white supremacy. It goes back to slave catchers, right? And so when we look at that and see hundreds of years now of that culture and institution um, building and building and building, wreaking havoc on black bodies, that will spill over. And that's what we're really seeing right now. In South, so I represent North Minneapolis, which is the historically black, uh, black part of the city, um, the black community labeled as the Negro slums on, during redlining. And um, so we have a very rough history with police uh, officer-involved deaths. I've experienced three in my war since uh, my first two years in office. So right now we have the National Guard and the state police who have – just come and occupied South Minneapolis. We have yesterday, we had a semi truck doing 70 miles per hour down the highway through thousands of protesters. So right now things are really violent, overtly violent in, 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 you know, escalating situations in South Minneapolis over North Minneapolis. We have a pretty interesting untold story about what's happening. We don't have protests. We don't have riots happening, but yet buildings, strategically are being burned. We have been informed uh, that there are suspected white supremacists who are using this opportunity to be able to terrorize our community. And so what we've had to do is um, after two nights of our local law enforcement and the state law enforcement not showing up and protecting our community, what we started to do is we've organized ourselves. Um, I've been working diligently with my husband to organize our community so we have community patrols out. So that's what we've had to do in order to make up for the gap in uh, law enforcement not stepping up to help protect our community from the from these uh, white supremacists who are coming in and terrorizing us. Now, I saw on, uh, I believe it was Saturday, it, it could have been Friday, but I saw what looked to be an apartment building going up in flames. And I, I guess I found out later um, that may have been like a new building under construction hadn't quite mm-hmm. been finished yet um, for like affordable housing. Is that true? Yes, it is. That is 
I do believe actually there was two buildings um, that were burned that were under development, affordable and deeply affordable. So folks making um, in Minneapolis or the Twin Cities, uh, our median in, uh, area income is like very, it's very high. So it's around 90,000. So it's about 60% of that is affordable. 30% of that is considered deeply affordable. So those were affordable and deeply affordable housing units, which are desperately needed in Minneapolis. Right now, uh, we have a less than 2% vacancy rate. Um, so rental, our re rental market is incredibly tight, causing a housing crisis. So that is very detrimental to our overall housing stability in our city when we see, unfortunately, incidents like that happen. And now this, uh, uh, this uh, um, petroleum truck, this this truck rolling down now I understood that the highways were blocked off so that traffic could not get through how did this individual get through and was anyone injured because it looked like he rolled right up on two people who seemed to be either laying down on the on the uh, freeway or are trying to get up off the, the pavement to get out of the way of the vehicle yes so that is a good question about how he got through. I don't have the answer to that yet. I think that's a, an excellent question that needs to be publicly answered. From the initial reports that I have, the only injury uh, is actually the driver himself. Um, the protesters were able to make the truck stop, and they pulled him out of the truck um, and then handed him off to police So uh, to be arrested. So – I, I don't yet have any other reports of injuries. It looks like folks did get out of the way, but that could change as time goes on. It's a rapidly evolving situation on the ground here. So now we have it. Um, we 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 have the other three officers uh, that that are um, still at large, in my opinion. Um, why haven't those three officers been arrested? And do you think that and if they are arrested, if they were arrested, excuse me. Uh, with uh, uh, Derek uh, Chauvin, uh, that it would have minimized the extent of the the, the riots and destruction and things of that nature um, out there, or was it so much outside um, uh, 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 agitation that that it didn't really matter whether or not all four had been arrested at once or not? Yes. So you know the question. Um around why haven't they been arrested yet. Again, I think that's an excellent question. I will say, though, that I'm very grateful uh, that the case has the cases have been handed over to our Minnesota Attorney General, Keith Ellison, whom we deeply trust as a city and a community. He's a uh, North Sider. We trust him. And mm -hmm. whereas we don't have a lot of deep trust in the Hennepin County attorney who has historically not held officers accountable with the exception of one, Mohammed Noor, who was a black – who is a black Muslim Somali who shot and killed a white woman. So that is one good sign uh, if in all of this darkness. But so the – how I see this is that – I don't think – two things. I don't think that even if all four officers had been arrested at the same time and even if they all get arrested, charged, and convicted, 
that that is not actually what we're really talking about here because mm-hmm. that is the bare minimum, right? At the end of the day, what we're asking for is for the system to hold its own accountable. But at the same time, what we're really talking about here is major systemic changes, institutionalized racism, systemic oppression. That is what we're talking about actually getting to the root of. So I don't think that we would have seen anything different even if all of the officers would have gotten charged because at the end of the day, that is not closure. That is not actual justice. What we need to be doing long term is looking at how do we build alternative systems of public safety outside of policing. So that is really the conversation long term I think we need to be having. That that's that's interesting. Um, yeah, I mean you're absolutely right because the, the 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 bare minimum is that they would get arrested. The bare minimum is that they will be tried and convicted, just as if they were were trying or, or convicting us for for some crime that we were into Wilmer. Right. We're we're seven days in, man, and for me, it it it, it kind of, you know, it's like we're seven days in. It feels like a Ferguson moment, and it's 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 not going to end anytime soon. Um, especially while these three officers are still out there, um, uh, free. But historically, you know, black folks and white cops have, you know, it, it's always ended with us dead one way or the other. Uh, speak to this historical fact for me and, and our ability to begin to change this cycle and deal with this. Well, yes. I think the first, so I think the first I'm, I'm part sorry, of your answer. I'm sorry, uh, 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 Council Member. Uh, let uh, Dr. Leon take that for me. My apologies. Thank you. Uh, That's okay. I, I, I think the, fir- the first part of the answer is to understand what has just happened. I'm not sure if you're aware the president just announced that he's uh, going to invoke the the um, Insurrection Act of 1807, which will now allow him to basically deputize the military. So if governors request, the president can send in the army to now act in a police capacity Whereas, uh, whereas with the um, Posse Comitatus Act, that is illegal unless the Insurrection Act is invoked. It's also, right. I think, important for people to realize also what the president did just as he uh, announced he had this press conference at the White House to show you how all of this is being coordinated through and for the media we'll say five minutes before he came to the podium, the police around the White House engaged with the protesters to create this imagery of mayhem and insurrection so that when the president comes to the podium, they can show the president speaking calmly, and then they go to a split shot in the upper right corner with all these people in the street running for their lives because the police have now fired tear gas and other types of incendiary devices and causing and causing all of this perceived mayhem in the street. And then after that, what does the president do? He leaves the White House, walks across Pennsylvania Avenue, walks through Lafayette Park, across H Street to the Church of the President. 
so that he can stand in front of the church with a Bible in his hand talking about how, how important the country is and the Bible and all, and all this other kind of stuff. So what they had to do was they had to clear all of these protesters <laughs> off of H Street, off of the front of Lafayette Park, just so the president can walk across the street like he's now John Wayne, um, surrounded by the military. <clears throat> it's, it's, whereas last night, because wow. they were fearful of the president's life, he and his family were cowering right. from other reports, cowering in the basement of the White House because they were afraid, I guess, that the, that the protesters were going to storm the White House and drag him out. It's, it's, it would be funny if it weren't so pathetic. Um, now, to, to basically answer your question, um, honestly, honestly, man, I, I don't know. You, you asked, what do we do? Well, through the legal process, we have to vote. And then once we vote, we've got to hold these protesters, I mean, uh, these politicians that we send to Washington and that we send into our state houses. We have to hold them accountable. The question is, accountable for what and to whom? Because one of the big problems that I'm seeing right now is, what are these people demanding? We don't know. What 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 are the what are the what's the agenda? It's not being articulated. What now we can talk about uh, we can talk about policing. We can talk about the um, d- d- disparity in income. We can talk about the wealth disparity. I mean, there are a number of things, of course, that are plaguing 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 the country. But in terms of being able to clearly articulate an agenda, which is what we had during the civil rights movement, we don't have that. And that's part of this – is, this is very disorganized. There's no real sense of leadership, which is what we had during the civil rights movement. The, the SCLC, Dr. King – there was very clear leadership that many um, communist organizations and and other so-called progressives tried to co-opt, but they couldn't because the leadership structure was so strong. That's a Mm -hmm. huge problem right now, the lack thereof. That that's that's interesting because th- that was one of the things that I sort of um, took when we originally started uh, Ferguson the Black Lives uh, Black Lives Matter because I wanted to see the leadership and I wanted to see policy agendas I wanted to see things that were articulated out of that that would allow us to make sure that we can start putting in place different things. And I think they've now done that, and they start to move in a in a in a, uh, a methodical manner, and, and local starting with the local races, and then going to state races, things of that nature. So let me come back to you, Council Member, because that's a that's a point um, that Dr. Leon makes is that what have the folks there, what have uh, the the protesters there come to you guys, the City Council, or the Mayor, or uh, even the Governor, with as terms of what their agenda is 
for you guys to start implementing change? What have they brought to you or if they brought anything to you uh, for change or what is it that you believe or see as their, their agenda items? Yes. So there are, well, first of all, I'll just say that we don't really have a primary organizing unit that's here. Uh, in, historically, we've had, for example, an organization called Neighborhoods Organizing for Change. They were they they are now defunct. There's mm-hmm. Black Lives Matter. They broke up into different groups, and so when we don't have a unified agenda. However, what has emerged are two themes. The first is to uh, for the for, for the other three officers to be arrested, and then the other is to defund the police. What that looks like, there's a clear ask from one particular group that's pretty well organized. However, it's it's still it's still sort of vague, and so the, but there isn't like a comprehensive. These are the sort of demands we want to see in order to close the racial disparities. That these are the kind of reforms we want. Mm-hmm. It is ultimately uh, defund the police department, and the the, the tagline is. Uh, defund police invest in communities so when they when they speak of defunding the police uh, are they going to come to the 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 uh city council they're going to come to the the mayor and the um uh i don't know if you guys have a city manager um and essentially ask you guys to defund them and then what do they do or what are they going what is the the the, the alternative for I, I guess for you you know your public safety and et cetera et cetera what is the the idea behind defunding the police? Yes, that is a a good question. I would say that from my perspective, well, first I'll just say that they have this has been a reoccurring ask for several years now from this particular group, um, okay. as well as as well as some others. Um, so this is this is an ongoing request. It's just being amplified during this time, and there's more folks who are agreeing with the fact that we spend as a city 100 and $190 million out of our $1.5 billion budget just on the police department. There's a lot of political will to continuously increase the number of police officers and their budgets. But you there spend is the $100 same million dollars on police? $190 million. Yes. Two hundred million. Um, yes, um, out of, out of our one point five billion dollar budget, it's a huge chunk, and that is not matched with affordable housing. That's not matched with youth development. That's not matched with public health, violence prevention. It's strictly focused really on criminalization of black and brown communities. We have a large native community community here too, who has just had awful experiences with the police department as well. So I agree. That's the thing too, is that we have a pretty progressive city council here in Minneapolis. I'm actually not the only black trans person on the city council. My colleague, council colleague, council vice president, Andrea Jenkins is also another black person, black trans person on the city council. We are a progressive council. We're ready to to move. What the issue is, and my particular theory of change as a as a, an elected official, is that there it's two simultaneous bodies of work. The first is working within the system that we've got. So we have policing. How do we navigate with what we've got? 
the at the same time building those alternative systems of public safety. So that is really where my bread and butter is as an elected official is the public health approach to public safety. So thinking about violence, whether it's community violence or family violence, thinking about it as a disease that spreads because it does. You get retaliatory violence, you get intergenerational. If somebody, if a child sees abuse in the home, they tend tend to grow up to become a, a perpetrator of violence themselves. So if it's treated like a contagious disease, you can treat it, you can prevent it, right? So that particular approach actually has been proven to work. But so looking at really providing – so an example, a specific example is uh, here in Minneapolis in our Office of Violence Prevention, we have a bedside – hospital bedside-based intervention system or program where somebody who comes into the uh, hospital who has been shot or stabbed – they get bedside intervention, so they get the immediate trauma of the experience addressed. Then they help prevent retaliatory violence. Then they are provided services basically for life after that, and it helps give particularly young folks a, a pathway out of the life sustainably. And so these strategies have proven to work. We need to be building them because the police should not be answering mental health crises, drug overdoses, domestic violence. All those sort of more nuanced issues, uh, we are expecting – we as a society are expecting officers to act like social workers when they are so far from that. We need them to stay in their lane and for us to continue to build systems that help divert off-ramp the need for police to be the first responders. I personally have very little faith in reform efforts because we just have not seen the data pan out that reform efforts have worked. Anti-bias training, body cams, requiring uh, residency requirements so they have to live in the city that they, that they serve, none of those have really panned out to su substantial, significant um, reform or change in culture in police departments. So I think that ultimately what we have to do is we have to think how do we work within what we've got and how do we long-term begin to think about violence prevention and intervention as well as how are we supporting folks coming out of incarceration back into our community so that we don't even need to have police in the first place. It, it sounds like, uh, 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 Wilmer, that the, the idea for them is essentially to try to community-based community the, the, the services and the, and, the, and the product and program, if you will, so that, like you said, that they don't need police except for violent offenders or, or, or robberies or things of that nature. But when we, when we look back in history of just thinking about Rodney King and, and, and how he was attacked by police and um, uh, Tamir Rice and uh, Michael Brown and all the others that we know that have been attacked, murdered, and killed by police and no accountability has come to them, is it realistic that we would be able to get to a point where we could have a community, a city like Minneapolis or, or, or uh, even smaller, be able to get to a point where they can do community-based policing, if you will, without a, a uh, organized police force or a police force that's not naturally coming in to do damage. Because remember, that police force is there to keep black folks in line. It's not there to keep white folks in line. It's to keep us in line. Well, I think you, we have to go back and understand the whole mindset that has been embedded uh, in the psyche of Americans 
and that is uh, the, the fear of others. And because what, what enables the city councils and the, and the state legislatures and other uh, governing bodies to impose these types of programs on the citizenry, a lot of this comes from the lobbying efforts of those who manufacture the hardware and those who, the military industrial complex, which uh, Dwight Eisenhower warned us about in 1960. Mm So, so you've got the police now with all this riot gear and you have the police with these militarized vehicles and their assault weapons. And, you know, you, would you say 200, uh, how much money did you say you were spending? 190 on million, 190 million, $200 million. Uh, $200 million. And it, it, it'd be interesting to see how much of that is on tactical equipment. Um, so, but again, there's a, there's a mindset that Americans have been convinced of. One of the things I'm sure that um, if you ask uh, uh, Councilman uh, uh, Cunningham, that one of the things that they're that they're afraid of is being labeled soft on crime, and because that's one of the you know weaponized um, narratives that gets used against politicians who want to try to implement the very types of programs that Councilman uh, Cunningham is talking about. Exactly. And a lot of that came out of the 80s and the, um, the, crack, the crack epidemic. Right. So, so there's, a, there's a, a mindset and an and a understanding that, that people are going to have to somehow come to uh, 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 people in, in charge and, and, and members of city councils like, like Councilman Cunningham, uh, you know, they are they are going to have to find and, and, and he he seems to have been able to do so, you know find the strength to stand up and articulate the types of programs that are going to make a difference so that you don't need this kind of money and you don't need to consume these kinds of resources because it comes down to you can pay me now or pay me later you're going to pay one way or the other it, mm-hmm. it's just a matter of where you want to put your money. Mm-hmm. And and. Thinking about that, uh, Wilmer, I mean, because the, the 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 whole practice behind the police was the the um, the the root of the slave patrols and being ultimately putting in policies and putting in um, uh, structures to make sure that they can always curtail the freedoms of Black folks. And so, mm-hmm. looking at it from that lens thinking about the type of programs that the council member wants to put in, but also the things that the community is trying to bring to them, how are they going to be able to move forward like that when you're talking about a $190, $190 million budget? I mean, that that's a huge budget. I'm, I'm, I'm looking at Minneapolis. That's a huge budget, $190 million for just, just for, that. Just for policing. For, for policing. That's 10% of their budget. Um, well, almost twenty uh, percent of their budget, uh, almost two hundred million, and they got a, a billion dollar budget. That's almost twenty percent of their budget just on policing. And like you said, it's not being compensated with education, housing, or, or infrastructure. And so that's why they. And, have, and I'll I, come back to you, Councilman. 
That's why they have that big disparity. And it's obviously not working. Yeah. It's it's not working either. So it, it's not it's not. You would think if you're investing that kind of money, you would have a different kind of return on your investment. But it but it's obviously not working. But because of this narrative, people think that this is the only option. Well, it's not working because we're not spending enough money. Mm-hmm. Well, no, you're you're spending you're spending too much money in that area, and you're not spending enough money on the mental mm-hmm. health side. You're not right. spending enough money in, in the other areas that would prevent people from having to call the police in the first place. First place. Right. All right. Let me bring in um, um, law professor uh, Sharon Kyle and bring her into the conversation and, and uh, have her join us here as well. Uh, hey, Sharon, how you doing? Oh, I'm okay. Thank you for having me, Michael. I'm, I am so excited that you're able to make it for us. We're, um, I'm, I'm talking with Councilmember uh, Cunningham and, and uh, Dr. Wilmer Leon. And we were just talking about the the budget of uh, Minneapolis's uh, uh, city budget is a billion dollars, and they're spending nearly two hundred million on their law enforcement. And looking at it from a standpoint of of how that money has been spent and what's happening, L.A. has its own issues, of course, with police brutality and the issues that have gone on for years, uh, from Rodney King prior to Rodney King, after Rodney King, and so forth. When you Think about what's going on in L.A. now, even through the protests and the riots and what's happening, and then looking at how this officer just sat on um, uh, George uh, Flood's neck and ultimately just watched him, you know, watched him die under his under his knee. Does it bring back memories of Rodney King and other areas of brutality? And, and what is it that you see? Um, is the, the the remedy of how we deal with white cops continuing to kill black men? So um, in answer to your first question, yes, what I see ha- that happened um, last week with um, George Floyd, and um, it's, it's just a, it's a tragic, tragic loss of life, unnecessary, tragic, but it's so it's a it's a a thread that has run through the black community for 400 years. So yes, we saw this with Rodney King, and and we saw this with um, with um, Eric Garner, and we saw the same types of incidents literally thousands of times. What's happening here in the city of Los Angeles is we have the Black Lives Matter movement in collaboration and in um, coalition with many other organizations, including the ACLU of Southern California, to support a people's budget. We've come up against the mayor of Los Angeles because of the budget that the mayor of Los Angeles has proposed, which grants more than half of the budget is granted to law enforcement. And we believe that this is a mirror reflection of really how the United States has addressed this highly um, militarization of urban communities using Department of Defense-type tactics with drones and all kinds of um, other expenditures that are used 
when you are an occupying force. These occupying forces are occupying the black and brown communities of not just Los Angeles, but every um, city throughout the United States. So the way that we're addressing is we are opposing expanding police budgets. In fact, we're supporting abolition and looking at new ways of maintaining a, 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 um, a society that doesn't require these highly militaristic types of, of techniques. Interesting. Uh, Council member, let me ask you, because it, it seems like this is a, a, a trend a, around all the major cities is to build our budgets up on policing, law enforcement, like the like uh, Dr. Wilmer said, um, it's, it's a point of trying to make sure we're hard on crime or, or tough on crime, if you will. Is there a, um, uh, a consensus or a sense among your city council members and the mayor? Uh, the mayor seems to be pretty progressive and very um, uh, uh, arduous about, you know, making sure that there's justice, that, that George gets justice. Um, is there an ability for him to do an executive order or something of that nature to stop the, the, the choking or the knee on the, knee on the throat um, tactic or any of those nature, any of that nature where you guys are looking to like make a, a policy change, make a, a policy move that you can actually enforce and actually show the people of um, Minneapolis that there's going to be something done even prior to the trial? Well, I'll start off with speaking to the perception of soft on crime. So I represent a very diverse ward. Um, the, there's no, it's a plurality, so there's no ethnic majority in my ward. However, we have the, uh, the largest group of people of color are black folks. Because of the fact that I advocate for a comprehensive approach to public safety, particularly systems outside of policing, I am just aggressively labeled as not taking public safety seriously, and mm -hmm. I get demands all of the time to not only increase the police budget, but to increase the amount of police, and I hear this predominantly from white constituents and who have said to me that the, they just want to be able to see more police around the community because then they will feel safer. And I keep having to do the emotional labor of walking them through, even if most of the time they can't even hear me, about how that is not universally true. That feeling and relationship to the police is not universally true. So that is absolutely the case. I am labeled as soft on crime. I had someone actually tell me that obviously public safety isn't a priority when I spend a majority of my time building up these systems. I started the Office of Violence Prevention, and I just want to give a comparison right quick before I get to the policies. So again, our budget for the police department out of a $1.5 billion budget is two, almost $200 million. I had to fight tooth and nail over this last budget cycle at the end of last year for 2020 to get $50,000 in a domestic violence intervention. And to get just to make the point very clear, domestic violence, domestic assaults are the number one reason across this entire city for 911 initiated calls for police service. But I had to fight tooth and nail for $50,000 because it's an intervention system rather than a law enforcement system. So that whole 
I have to I have to work so hard for that. So the audacity to say that I don't prioritize public safety is just off the off the charts. So policy wise, I will say that the that that the 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 neck compression that is already against policy. So their their our use of force policy is fairly comprehensive. Where there's a gap is around um, accountability metrics and. Uh, uh, right now, it makes it nearly impossible to fight or, or to fire police officers. In fact, right now, the police union is already fighting and working to get the four officers reinstated. The The police union contract makes that – or I prefer to call it the federation contract because police unions are not regular labor unions. Mm-hmm. The So, you know, I I would say that – our mayor largely defers when it comes to um, issues of policing and the police department. He really largely defers to our black chief, um, first black chief um, in Minneapolis history. I We have a fantastic chief. He works so hard. He's got the exact kind of lens that you wish every single officer had. But that's that kind of pulls at the top. That doesn't really trickle down to the rank and file. And so – it's we we can we have made policy changes you know or not we because the city council doesn't have authority over the police department but the mayor has but really ultimately he supports increasing the amount of police officers he, he supports increasing the police budget the police chief asked for 400 more patrol officers when we have already an off uh, a sworn force of 888 um so looking to increase it by 50% and just like all of those being out on the streets. So I reform coming um, from the current culture, I don't really see much of the case. A lot of folks, uh, I would say that there's a perspective of this isolated incident rather than a systemic institutionalized problem. Now that's not necessarily with the chief. The chief understands that there are fundamental issues but when it comes to policing, and I'm sure this is true everywhere in the country, but I feel it so acutely here in Minneapolis, either you're for the police or you're against the police. And if you're against the police, then you're obviously against public safety, and you're soft on crime. And I actually had someone tell me that I'm more concerned with making sure black folks aren't being chased by the police than addressing black crime. And like that sort of mentality – is really what drives electoral politics around here. Even though we are a progressive city, there's always political will to add more money to the police budget. There is not the same sort of energy and political will behind investing in those um, alternate systems that are outside of policing. So I feel like policy changes are not imminent. I do not think that you're gonna we're gonna see any sort of sub- substantive change. I because the way that folks are seeing it is that he violated policy already in the first place. And so from that place, I'm just like, we need to, to, to just keep moving past reform and start thinking about building new systems altogether that are not rooted in white supremacy. And that's, and that's going to be the, the challenge here because uh, Wilmer, when you have William Barr coming out, politicizing the whole protest and, and talking about being leftist and, 
And I personally seen white folks with skateboards, breaking windows, sledgehammers, um, and things of that nature. And this intelligence that they're talking about, they're getting um, about these groups going in. And I, I tend to want to, to lean to the side of the council member because I know that uh, when I was watching the riots and seeing folks um, um, breaking windows and things of that nature, like I said, it was due to skateboards. They were white. They, they had hammers and, and, and weapons. Uh, now, the folks who ran in looting, it was everybody doing that piece, but the ones who broke the window to start the whole, the whole uh, uh, rioting was, was white folks. And you have William Barr, and now you have, uh, like you said, the, uh, Donald Trump coming out to now militarize the, I mean, um, deputize the military. Those things, how are we going to deal with with uh, uh, an attorney general and do what uh, the council member is talking about when you have an attorney general attempting to continually to pit the white folks and, and, and this murder of this innocent man and make it a political issue of what this man did? Well, I think the things that you're articulating are small pieces of a much bigger problem, and that is we as American citizens have lost control of our electoral process. And you've got a president now that wants to speak out against um, uh, mail-in ballots because uh, Barr was appointed by the president. Mm -hmm. So if you're not dealing with Donald Trump, you're not dealing with Barr. But Trump was imposed upon us and we have a Democratic Party that isn't even really talking about voter suppression to the degree that they need to be so that people can become aware of it and stand up in their own areas and take control of their political processes. Because we have a Democratic Party that much rather lose with Joe Biden than win with a Bernie Sanders. And I don't say that to, to, as an advocate of Bernie Sanders. I'm using that as an example of, of the dynamics that are at play, even within the Democratic Party. You're right. So, so this, is, this is a much bigger problem. What, what, what we're experiencing and talking about here are symptoms of a much, much, much bigger problem. Um, in terms of the anarchists, I'd like to go and ask uh, Council Member Cunningham about the police station that was burned because you've got to have some pretty good understanding of arson to be able and, and explosives and and pipe and uh, uh you, you know you don't just walk into a police department and set it on fire. <laughs> no, you don't. You do know that. the average the average brother on the street it, it, he can yeah, be he, as, as, as riotous as he want to be. Right. But he can't go into a police station and set the whole darn thing on fire. Right. So there were some forces at play here with other agendas than yeah. avenging the death of, of Mr. Floyd. Yeah. And so and, and, and to your point about the people on the skateboards and with the hammers, what a lot of these uh white anarchists do is they're in the back of a march as it's proceeding down the street, then they run to the front, they break some windows, then run to the back and hide in the crowd again. 
That's not what we do. That's not what we're about. That's not what most of these people that are protesting are about. But those yeah. are the tactics that are being employed, and then we wind up getting blamed for them. We do. Sharon, let me ask you, um, can can George Floyd's death be the catalyst until November to keep us engaged and keep us aware of the issues like, like Wormer's talking about and keep us active to get to the polls and, and help us to elect new district attorneys and local judges and mayors and members of Congress and state legislators? Can, can, can it stay and keep us motivated like we saw in Ferguson uh, with the opposite result of Ferguson because they, they processed in Ferguson for like a year and a half but then when it came time to re-election or the elections, they allowed the same mayor and DA to get re-elected. Can we do something different? Will this be a catalyst for Minneapolis to be able to hold on, to make a change um, in whatever direction they need to make it in, whether it be the DA, whether it be uh, the, the uh, uh, you know, uh, state legislators or whatever case it is, so that they can use this as a catalyst to keep the fire burning, if you will, uh, till they get to November? The only way that it can be used as a catalyst is if we employ a, a, a whole different set of tactics. While it's very important to have the passion that the people have right now, it is an opportunity to use that passion constructively, to harness that passion, and to use it to organize and plan. The, the key word here is plan to take that passion and convert it into something that's transformative, that really engages people to be members of the electorate. Currently, we don't really have an informed electorate. If people vote, now we know that the vast majority of people in 2016, I think it's something like 1.6 uh, million stayed home that could that could have voted. If we can harness that energy and turn them into informed voters, yes, this would be the perfect opportunity. Um, Naomi Klein wrote a book called The Shock Doctrine, where she talks about how in these major moments of upheaval, deep-pocketed corporations use these opportunities against us. Well, we can take mm-hmm. a lesson from that same playbook. And we can use this as an opportunity to harness that passion and that rage. But we've got to stay together and plan. And that, and that really requires strong leadership, which we haven't had. We certainly do not have it in the Democratic Party. Because right. the Democratic Party is all too willing to bend to the demands of the corporatocracy. So we have to develop our own leadership. And it's it's divorced from the democratic it's it's divorced from the two party system. The two party system has failed us consistently. It's why we're here. It is. Wilma, real quick. Now in November, I don't know. Right. Exactly, Wilma. Real quick uh, before I go back to the council member, what's at stake? Everything, and and that and I don't say that to sound trite. Uh, Everything is at stake, And, and if I could, real quick. We got to be sure when we talk about those that didn't vote, we always have to put that in the context of those who showed up, but because of voter suppression tactics, were not allowed to vote. Mm-hmm. That's be- right. Because when 
when you look at Arizona, when you look at Michigan, Philadelphia, North Carolina, you had hundreds of thousands of people who came to vote, but because of the cross-check program, they weren't allowed to. I got to get out. Okay. Thank you, Wilmer. I appreciate it. Council member, um, some, similar to what I asked uh, uh, Sharon, uh, Professor Kyle, is, is, is will this I'm well. Unfortunate tragedy. I got to end this other. Go ahead, Warren. Will this unfortunate tragedy uh, uh, help uh, motivate your your constituents and motivate the 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 folks there in Minneapolis to push forward and stay focused until November, so that we can make a change not only in 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 D.C. here in D.C. and in Congress, but in your state legislatures and and on down the the ticket to to dog catcher and to the local you know watershed guy. Uh, can can we focus and can that happen in, in your city and your community? You know, I will say that I hope that we can harness some energy, but I will also say I, I very much so agree with the professor here that there's a very strong disillusionment with the two-party system. Folks really feel – black folks feel very used and abused by the Democratic Party, uh, assuming that they have our votes because Republicans are so – overtly racist uh, dog whistle in the past few, maybe 10, 20 right. years, and now it's just flat out back out. Um, and so, you know, I, I think that that's one of the challenges is how do we actually build a political system that is not rooted in white supremacy, that is not rooted in either or, that really actually builds community power. And I do want to say last thing as well, as we're talking about black folks not voting, is that actually, for example, in Minnesota, if you have a felony, you cannot vote. So that is also something worth noting is that we are just so systematically locked out of voting that folks feel hopeless and like it's pointless. Folks get their elected, their preferred candidates into office, and then that candidate immediately conforms to white supremacy. I'll say like on the local level, eat it. Like sometimes I have to like spend a lot of time doing self-care and a lot of praying and meditating to be able to not let the system eat me alive because I am there to dismantle white supremacy from within. That's what I feel like my work is in this, in, in the movement. And so, but folks don't always do that. And so I, I'm hoping that we can be able to do the work to be able to make sure we get Trump out of office but I also have just concerns that folks just feel far too disillusioned to be invested in seeing any – folks feel damned if you do, if you're damned if you don't. So, um, so, but let's hope that we can build a, an electoral system that actually has community voice in the process. Now, um, who controls the legislature there? You, we have a Democratic governor, but who controls your legislature? So I, I do believe we're actually the only split – legislature right now we have a republican senate and a democrat democratic house. house okay all right um and so we certainly want to make sure that folks get out and do the census so that we can change that that's um, right. and flip that that's and right. make sure we also vote because that's one thing i i try to tell my people each show every show make sure you respond to that census and make sure you get out and vote because the next 10 years, even though you may vote more often because of the way they draw these lines, it's going to impact you. Yep. Um, and you're not going to be able to get ahead. What's at stake for us, uh, council member? 
I'm sorry. I you broke up there at the end. I apologize. I, I was saying, what's what, at what stake for us? Yeah, what's at stake for us? Oh, billions upon billions of dollars in investment in our communities, um, representation. You know, it's also really important for folks to push for civilian authority over redistricting uh, to be able to have community voice leading that process rather than the folks who are who stand to benefit the most from drawing the lines. We need to make sure that the uh, who are the politicians, we need to make sure that folks in the community are actually the ones who are drawing those lines in a transparent, clear way that has community voice and data behind it. But the biggest thing is we need to make sure that we have thorough, robust re representation. So if we aren't counted, we will have less representation. And to make sure that we get the kind of resources that we need from the federal government. So if we're not counted, so let's say somebody has a newborn that they don't count, that money for that child that for the next 10 years of their education, for example, will not be mm -hmm. available over the next exactly. 10 years. Uh, WIC and food stamps, all the things that they need is not, is not allocated to the community. And so those are the sort of resources that are at stake. It's very high stakes. Um, I know that it, it's hard to trust systems. I will say that it, uh, that it is illegal for systems within uh, government to share the census data. I know that that still is not very reassuring, but I do think it is worth noting because I, I, it, it, it can seem very nerve-wracking to give your information. However, to not do so will harm not only individuals but our community at large. The community at large. Sharon, Professor Kyle. Uh, socially, economically, and politically, we've been looted our, our entire existence here in America, in the United States. Uh, the, the system has looted us. The, the whole uh, criminal justice system has looted us. The political system has looted us. Where do we go from here, and what's at stake for us um, as, as we try to move forward and, and come out of this pandemic, come out of this uh, um, uh, police brutality, and, and move forward to, to, to looking something better because the idea that we're going to be the majority here uh, in, in, in just a few short years is where do we go? H how do we you know, move forward into that leadership role and start taking over our own destiny? Well, believe it or not, I actually have um, so much hope. In fact, this past two weeks, as tragic as they have been, it's been filled with tragedy. It's been really depressing. But at the same time, it's sort of simultaneously there have been dual tracks. The people of the world, not just the United States, the people of the world have stood up and said, we do not stand for this and no one should stand for this. So I have a lot of hope that the hopelessness, the lack of agency, the way that our people have been beaten down, that they have been shown that the world is standing with us. I believe that the Democratic Party is getting a strong message. This voter suppression and felony disenfranchisement, this didn't just happen in 2016. This has been going on for a while. The Democratic Party is losing points big time. So I have a tremendous amount of hope that even if things don't work out exactly the way we want in November, we are still marching forward to change. And the change that I'm talking about is finally getting to a place in this country where we really have democracy. 
and a populace that is fully engaged. And I mean more than just voting. I mean shaping policy. I mean shaping the society the way that we want to see the society be. So, yes, I think that that's what's at stake, and I think we've got the power to do it. How can we get in touch with you, uh, Professor of Social Media, LA Progressive, and uh, our newest contributor to BPT? How can we get in touch with you and follow you on social media? You can follow me. Uh, just do a search for LA Progressive, Twitter at LA Progressive, um, Facebook LA Progressive, Instagram LA Progressive, www.laprogressive.com. Anything LA Progressive will be me. And my husband, who is the co-founder, Dick Price and Sharon Kyle. All right. Council member, how can we follow you social media-wise and what you're doing next, what's coming up next for you? Yes. So you can follow me on Twitter, uh, at CunninghamMPLS, or at MPLS Ward 4. And uh, you can also follow us on Facebook, uh, Philippe Cunningham, Council Member Ward 4. I want to thank my guest tonight, law professor Sharon Kyle, publisher of LA Progressive in Los Angeles, California, and also uh, Dr. Wilmer Leon, host of Sirius XM Insights Issues with Wilmer Leon, and of course, our special guest, Minneapolis Ward 4 City Council Member Philippe Cunningham. Listen, Black America, you hear me say this over and over again each week. What's at stake for you and your family? If you don't know by now, then there is nothing that's going to help you out. If you sat and watched the grave depravity that that police officer had for George Floyd, uh, just looking in his eyes, he could give a damn about what this man's life was or whether or not he was going to breathe or not breathe. As many people came up to him and said, he can't breathe, get off of him. He just looked at them with his hand on his hip and just sat there, adjusted himself and kept pressing down. He didn't care. Just like Donald Trump didn't care about black folks dying with the coronavirus. Once he found out it was us who was dying, he said, open up the America. We don't need to stay back at home because it's them. It's not us. We don't need to worry about it. And it's very clear to me that a white woman in the park can pick up her phone and project on an innocent black man that she's going to call the police and tell them that she's being threatened by him and ultimately screams in the phone, he's threatening me, he's threatening me, and hangs up the phone all because she knew that because she said a black man was doing it, it was going to get her a response. It didn't matter if it's from the left or it's from the right. Black people are on notice. We don't care about you, and we're going to do whatever we have to to keep you in your place. So please don't sit back or think that someone else is going to take care of it or do it for you. We have to do it ourselves. We have to respond to the census. We have to vote, and we have to put people in seats that are going to help make a difference. Until next week, if it's social, economic, or political, it's Black Politics Today. I want to thank my guest again, uh, Minneapolis Council Member Ward 4, City Council Member Philippe Cunningham. Appreciate you, my brother. I thank you so much for joining us today. I'm certainly going to be calling you again to have you come back again. And, of course, Sharon Kyle, uh, professor, law professor, um, Sharon Kyle, and uh, publisher of L.A. Progressive, uh, the newest contributor to Black Politics Today magazine, as well as Dr. Wilma Leon. Thank you, guys. I appreciate you joining us tonight. And, of course, I'll be calling you for our town hall that we're going to be doing and a few other things. So be prepared and look out for us. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Appreciate Thank it, man. Thank you so much. Thanks, Sharon. I appreciate you. Good night, everyone. Thank you for listening to Black Politics Today on I for What's at Stake in Global Politics with your host, Kelly Michael Williams. Join us live each Monday from 7 to 8 p.m. 
Until next time, follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and download us on iTunes at Black Politics Today. <laughs>